0: The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify. The law has no power to justify. I mean, do you hear that, Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Do you hear that, people who are watching the news every night, as if voting for one of them is going to fix it? Not kidding at all, though. We cannot justify the last five months of life in America. Frankly, you can't justify your entire life. You've been quite selfish. I too. I'm I'm not out of this boat. There is no excuse for us according to what is good. The law, what is good, what should be good. It has no power to make us good. To Jesus, we for refuge flee as to hide to hide. To Jesus, we for refuge flee who from the curse, that's the sin, has set us free. And humbly, as with humility that is humiliated, knowing our wretched state, worship at his throne, saved by his grace through faith alone. Good Lutheran words. Matthew chapter five before us this morning is perhaps the most complicated of our texts. It's about justification. It's about the law being insufficient to help you do what it says do. And so all it can finally do is crush you. And it doesn't matter if this is God's law or your own personal made-up sets of goals for the coming week. You know how that feels, right? Friday night, oh, look at what's left. Crushed by what? The law, it has no power to justify you. Well, the Pharisees arguing with Jesus early on in his ministry in chapter 5, I doubt they would have been in a conversation with Jesus directly about justification at any point. They were far far more concerned with holiness. And Jesus doesn't exactly bring up justification in our text today, but he does. And here's, here's one of these many, many places where English just hasn't served us well as Christians, and specifically as Lutherans, because others have translated the English for us. We don't have a Lutheran Bible. And the result is that there are words that get translated in, well, weird ways. So for example, do you know that this first verse, verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5 that we're looking at here, it says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, that's the same root word as justification. You can just cross it out and write justification in your Bible. I tell you, unless your justification, and if that word's too big, just put the word excuse there instead. Unless your excuse exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the reign of God. And this is huge, reign of God thing. Back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus bursts onto the scene proclaiming the reign of God on earth as something much more than an area. This is an action, this is an invasion, and frankly, he's it. Well, that's what he's saying now. If, If you want to enter that invasion that I, Jesus of Nazareth, am, then your justification, your excuse, has got to be better than that of all of those who knew the Bible left and right, backwards and forwards, who lived it to a T, and who hated everybody they came in contact with. Just like a lot of Christians, I suppose. Just like a lot of humans. I suppose. We don't have it, is his point. And you know this if you went to Lutheran Catechism class where they showed you how murder is tied to anger here by Jesus. You see that in verses 21 and 22. And if you take that very seriously at all, you quickly find out that the moment you've become angry at somebody else or even some other thing in the world, you have in fact shown yourself a murderer. You don't have to complete the task. You just think you have the right to pour out wrath on the world. And that's a pretty arrogant thing, frankly. This hit me this week in a fun way. I, I, had, a, I had a hard week in some ways, but a really fun one. Um, I, was, I was reading the Bible on my patio. I, I just bought this new house. I have a patio. I can see the lake. I'm so excited. I sit up there in the morning. I open the Bible. And, and there's like a little overhang. And, you know, it's been raining. So there's just some water drops on the bottom of my gutter. I think I need to get up into my gutters pretty soon. But, you know, it might have been condensation. Anyway, uh, I'd seen it before. I sit here other times. So I got out a towel and I wiped it off. I sat down to read my Bible, Ah, 14 minutes in, wouldn't you know, plop, a little spot of water right there. And out of my mouth came these words, a pox on you, a pox on you. I cursed my new house. I asked the divine spirits to curse my house immediately. It hit me what I'd done. I mean, I didn't think it through. (laughs) I just said it, right? And then I said, dear heavens, thank you, house, for providing protection from the storm last night. And thank you, Jesus, for this house. And I return to my reading of scripture, but not without waiting to pause over my own humiliation for who I am. But my justification does exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. And it's not because I've never called someone a fool. It's not because I've never been angry. It's not because I'm reconciled with everybody I should be. How hard is it not? It's because I've come to terms with my accuser on the way to court. That's verse 25. So if you're taking notes, you can draw a line at verse 22 and draw another line at verse 25, and you can write, In the first section, justification before men. And in the second section, justification before God. Because that's what he's talking about. That when you're dealing with your brother, if you call him a fool, you may as well be a murderer in his sight. That's what he's going to think of you. So as James says, we are not justified only by what we believe, but by also what we do. And he doesn't mean that's how we get saved. He simply means, if you want your brother to believe a lick of what you say, he can't be a sneaking hypocrite. But then the second part, the justification of man before God, that's the twist in the whole thing. Well, wait, wait, when were we at court, Jesus? We were just talking about the commandments a moment ago. Oh, you could be brought to court for breaking those commandments back in the day. But Who's the accuser who has come upon this people, the invasion of the reign of God, to declare that we are without excuse? Well, it's Jesus himself and his own preaching about us. And he says, come to terms with me. Before you get to court, that'd be the judgment day when the accuser, who actually is not Jesus, but the devil he's got on a chain, when that accuser will let you go over to the judge to defend yourself, the judge will... Leave you to the guard. That'd be the angels to throw you into prison. That'd be that hell of fire he just mentioned. And you won't get out until you've paid the last penny if you think you can get there on your own. So before you get to court, come to terms with your accuser. Now, the text there doesn't really help us, does it? It just ends. And I have to say in our liturgy, the gospel of the Lord, right? And you're like, wow, that didn't feel very good. That was rough. But there's a nice thing here. If you have your Bible Bible with you, go back before this reading to verses 17 through 19, which are optional readings, but I didn't let Sue know that soon enough to make it official this week. But there, Jesus opens this whole section about talking about the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment. He's going to go into a big streak of it with these words. And it's not about how you have to get yourself out of jail. It's about how to settle with your accuser, more how the accuser has decided to settle with you. Do not think I have come to abolish The law or the prophets, verse 17 says, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Fulfill. He doesn't say I've come to mete out punishment on those who haven't kept it. He said, I've come to be it, to do it. That which man cannot do by law alone, by virtue of incarnation with God again, man can do. Man does. He is. And so everything he's saying here about what it takes to be justified and righteous, don't get angry, don't call some a fool, don't lust, don't even think about stealing something. All of that, he never did. And the best part is that he did it to give that to you. And that's what Romans 6 is going to give us today. But that's the, that's the, like, the grand slam finish here. We got to jump back and touch on our Ten Commandments first. But stay with our like – we're ready for some gospel now, right? So so stick with that feeling. Not that the Ten Commandments really are going to make you feel great uh, if you you look at them seriously and let yourself be accused. But there's some real beautiful stuff here, too. For the Christian, once he has realized, and we'll we'll get to this through Romans 6, once you've realized that, yep, you're that bad, but, yep, he's not going to punish you for it, you actually have a new platform for assessing how to change it because you're no longer identified with your sin for yourself. Everyone else has to defend themselves because their identity is their actions. Yours have been divorced from you. You can look at me and be like, yep, that's going to hell in Jesus. But I'm still here. And I'm free. And so even though I might, I will stumble again. I'm not going to try to. And I'm going to be glad all the way. But I've been given more life in Jesus. We'll come back to that. Ten commandments then, when you get to this, with that mindset, now no longer are here to tell you how you're a murderer. They're here to tell you what love looks like. What community looks like what cities look like, what families look like, what worship looks like, what paradise will look like. And I'm going to do that for you. Let me give you something else that's just a fun, quirky, weird. It says everywhere you're ever going to see this, the Ten Commandments. But it doesn't say that here. It says God spoke all these words All right, 10 words there. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of words. I didn't count them in English. I didn't count them in Hebrew. I counted the sentences that said do something though, right? So I counted the assertions, the declarations. There's 14 of those. I checked with my good friend who I trust on these issues. I said, are there 14? He said, there's 14 and there's a right number of 10. And here's why. It's because in Deuteronomy 4, 13 and 10, 4 and Exodus 34, 28, it references the 10 commandments but there's still a problem. Even though it references them, it never numbers them for us. And the result is that we have 14 sentences that need to be put into 10 sentences. And the result of that is that there are four ways that the commandments are numbered in the world today. And if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who's an Eastern Orthodox or a Jew, you're gonna find that there's a different number. And you say second commandment and they go, oh, not having idols or not having statues. No, I was talking about taking God's name in vain. Oh, that's the wrong way. And we get in an argument about which the right way is. There's, there's 10 commandments. There's 14 sentences. All of them are true. It's quite incredible that you can use this to try to make some of them go away. In any case, I'll just give you the, the bird's eye view. For the Jew, for the Hebrew, they believe that the first commandment is verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'll give you a, a, I'll just confess it I'm partial to their numbering I think it makes a lot of sense and then the second commandment would have you shall have no would be you shall have no other gods that's our first and from there it's it's mostly similar until 9 and 10 where we have two covet ones and they don't they have one covet we have the same as the Roman Catholic because we inherited it through the western church through doctor luther's reformation so you know ours I hope the eastern orthodox and the Reformed, the Calvinists, often the Baptists and non-denominationals, strangely, even though they had no real contact historically, have the same numbering. And theirs is that the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods. And the second commandment is, you shall make no graven images. And so in a Reformed church, really any non-Lutheran, non-Catholic who else might do this there's just very few most christian denominations if we're going to count them by number of them existing you would never find a statue of jesus in them because they think it's wrong to have a statue like the marxists apparently Ha. sorry that was personal um it's called iconoclasm no matter who's doing it when you tear down a statue iconoclasm the hatred of images and certainly the text says you shall not make for yourself a carved image So I'll come back and touch on that. But that's their numbering. That's two. And then three becomes, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God. Uh, But then you have one, two, three. Oh, Roman and Lutheran do splinter. We splinter at the back end with the ninth and tenth where we divide. We both have two covets, but we divide it separately. (laughs) Quirky. Um, It it really doesn't matter much. So let's just stick with this iconoclasm for a moment, though, because it is kind of important. And and let's go back and remember that the thing opens with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The whole thing starts with a gospel promise. I mean, the first word, the first command is that I'm your God. That's not like, I'd like to be your God, or pretty please, would you let me be your God? Like, it's, I'm your God. Like, you're mine, right? That's it. That's the first commandment. I love this commandment. It's my favorite commandment. (laughs) It's so gospel all the way through. I belong to God this is before i'm even redeemed redemption becomes that much better than does it not all the same following that idea you have a section that says you shall have no other gods before me which it would seem ends where is it now with verse five some of it if you look at verse five it says you shall not bow down to them or serve them so lutherans and jews have always numbered this as one commandment which does not say tear down idols because between have no other gods and do not bow down to them is all the bit about serving them. So we understand that while you might have a other god that is a statue, you can still have another god without statues. And I think Calvinists would agree with that. But for some reason, an Eastern Orthodox, it's all going to be flat. 2D, no 3D, that's it. Oh, well, I find that odd. Because, frankly, if, if you're really going to be legalistic about not making an image, a likeness of anything in heaven or above or the earth beneath or the water or any of that, you, you should turn off your TV and stop taking family pictures real quick. Hypocrite. There's no iconoclast in here. Hypocrite. Turn it off. I'm an image. I think that's insane, by the way, to take it that way. But if you're going to do it that way, that's what you got to do. None of this nam de pansy no statues but we'll put up pictures of our kids and worship them until we die i mean it's just it's insane the argument but you can see i think they're, they're trying they, they want i don't want to be rude to you you're not mad you've just been taught not to see you can see between verse again three and four you have this section that the verse numbers don't break up quite right in which it talks about what it means to have another god and then it shifts into this extended talk about what it means to have the true God. So in some ways, and this is what Luther believes, what Lutherans teach, not the Jews, is that this whole section's the first commandment, all the way through. But he didn't want to have you lose so much of it when you memorize it, so he took it out and he, he summarized all the commandments at the back end with it. So we call it in catechism the summary of the commandments, but it's still just the first commandment. And so frankly, we do believe you should not make a carved image and bow down to it and worship it. And if you're having trouble letting the TV brainwash you, you should maybe think twice about that. And If you you cannot let go of your idolatry of anything, you need to repent of that. And the beautiful thing about all of this is that Jesus knows all this and has the path laid out for you. I'll come right back to that. But let's just leave it here. So we've got commandment one at the very least is no other gods. Commandment two is... What? Well, then we would say where it starts with the next main idea. That's verse five. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, how many of you are going to be in arguments with iconoclasts in the coming week? Well, again, I I jested earlier, but it's actually happening for different reasons, but similar reasons in in our country at the moment. So to know that we are not against statuary on principle as Christians. In fact, we believe they exist as art to reflect The createdness of God and Christ's own incarnation into our flesh and blood and his own crafting of things with tools with his own hands demonstrates that he loves the creation. And frankly, right after God says, don't make a carved image, he turns around and says, make some carved angels, make some carved pomegranates, put them on the temple. And in the temple, you would have found all sorts of carved images. Was God breaking his own commandment? No, of course not. But you were worshiping the true God there. And so again, an image of Christ on the cross I said this last week, shall I say it again? It's there so you remember to worship the true God who put himself where you ought to be. If you don't like seeing his face on the cross, put your face there because that's what it's supposed to preach to you. That is done in God's sight. And this is where Romans 6 is going to just be the thing you've been waiting for. If you can turn there, please do. Romans 6, verses 3 through 11. I'm not going to say it's my favorite text. It's not. Uh, But I have taught this probably more than anything ever, not only because in catechism you have to teach it every year, uh, because it's the primary text on what baptism is, but also because I do stuff on the Internet, and you wouldn't believe how many people think we're wrong about baptism. Well, maybe maybe you would, but everybody thinks we're wrong about baptism. And so these questions come up often. And this text is finally the text that you just got to believe it at some point. Uh, And once you do it, it shifts everything on its head. Not only what baptism is, what the sacraments are, how physical God wants to be as your creator now, uh, the life of hope and courage. All these things come from understanding the solidarity God gives you in your baptism. And and the text is going to tell us this now. Now, before we do that, I want to give you a, I don't know, a dramatic reading, a, a performance of some of the text What I did was I realized that you can kind of follow this with me in verse three. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I already knew, but I realized that baptism and death right here at the starter. He says they're the same thing. Okay, so just just put that down. If you're taking notes, baptism and death are one. They're the same thing. Now, listen to this. This is just from this section. Baptized, baptized, death, baptism, death, dead, death, crucified, brought to nothing, no longer enslaved, died, dead, death, death, died, died, dead. But something else is happening, too. You also have, in verse 4, Christ was raised. So baptism is death, Christ was raised. So here we go. Christ Jesus, Christ raised, life, resurrection with him, no longer enslaved, set free. Christ live, Christ raised, never die. Life lives, lives, you alive in Christ. Now, it looks like it's a text about baptism and death and Jesus and resurrection. What do you say? Should we agree? Right? So, so at that much, you have to know that wherever there's baptism, there's the death and resurrection to Jesus, or you just don't believe the Bible. And it's that simple. And if you're like, but, but, but I know, I know. I don't mean you're not a Christian. I'm talking to the internet now. I just mean, you don't believe what it says here. Cause it's really, it's obvious. Just circle those words. That's what the text is about. Baptism is death, Christ's death and your life. Now, let me, let me go like uh, physics on you. Meta narrative or metaphysics i'm i'm enough of a nerd that i believe that wormholes maybe are possible I was, I was opining to my wife last night about the possibility of aliens and how i'm kind of okay with it assuming we can find a way to bend space and jump through holes to get to the like the far off places because i don't see us traveling like centuries in sleep pods to do this thing right um so like and, and i'm just pondering you know do aliens exist or, or what have you <laughs> In this, end, though, I am confident and comfortable to be unafraid that it doesn't matter if they do. I am confident and comfortable to be unafraid that no matter what may come, the clarity of the scriptures ascertains and asserts that, again, transcosmically, more than a story about aliens seeding like living beings on earth, which is what many people believe today is how we got evolved here, far beyond that reality. Is the fact that in Christ Jesus, on the cross, speaking to a man across the way on another cross, you have a God saying, I can beat this. And he does. He he dies and he comes back. And he says, I beat it. Now go, get people wet with water and say, (laughs) in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, put you on them as fast as you can, I suppose. Get them wet with water and it'll work. They'll believe. And like water to head to mouth to hand, to water to head to mouth to hand, to water to head to mouth to hand, to water to head to mouth to hand, hand, all the way down through history to your face, my face, and a little boy I just did eight, nine days ago. Jesus made that happen with his words. Just, Just the getting wet part. But then he says, this is what it means now. So I'm holding this boy last week. I didn't even think about it then. I wish I had. It would have been more fun at the time. I'm hold this little boy and i'm getting him wet and somehow what happens is that god bends time in half not to get to the intergalactic far-offs but to reach through history forward from jesus on the cross to that infant grab him out of my hands poof he's gone shove him fully into the body of jesus right as he dies boom so now jesus is dead infant's dead inside jesus three days later Jesus rises, infants alive, look at that. Shoved back forward through history, right into my arms. I caught him, almost missed, caught him. Here he is, only we never saw it happen. It's just promised that that was happening. That's all. Because to be baptized into Christ is to be baptized into his death. And if we are united with him in death, we will be united with him in resurrection. He died that we might live. Now, we could do so much more because all those baptisms and deaths flying around everywhere, there's a bunch there. But what I want to do for the last five minutes here or so is just look at verse 11. Because verse 11 is what I would call a radical statement. It is a radical gospel. I say that intentionally. I don't know if you know this, but out in the LCMS slash Lutheran world on the Internet, we like arguing with each other about stuff while the world burns. And one of the things that we like to argue about is law and gospel and how we're right about it and you're not, whoever you might be. I know more than you do because it's the hardest art and no one can learn it. (laughs) You would think that would mean we'd all admit we probably don't know much. There is in that argument going on a group referred to as the radical gospel people. And frankly, I think they go too far sometimes. I really do. But I don't think it's right because of that, if and when it does occur by individuals publicly, to reject the truth that the gospel, the good news, what Jesus is doing, the promise I was just talking about it, is is truly radical. Like outside of reality, out of the box, doesn't ever come into our minds, and yet changes everything. And this verse, uh, verse 11, we'll Will compel you to wrestle with just how deep that goes but you have to first agree with me that the common way of reading it is wrong and you may not and that's fine if you don't the common way of reading it would be like you must consider yourselves dead to sin meaning you must try not to sin anymore because it's wrong and alive to god in christ meaning you should try to be a good person because it's right i'm not going to disagree with that's a good idea right Like, I'm okay with the outcome of that understanding of the text. I just don't think that's what the text is saying. The Bible says that all sorts of places. But we've been talking about baptism and death and resurrection, not about how I should be a good person. Although, you go back further, it is about how to stop sinning. But then, knowing what I know about baptism, when I turn around and make an effort to stop sinning, how should I consider that fight? Should I consider the fight in which I, by my bootstraps, pull myself up and stand before my enemy to crush him? Or is it more like I'm a little tiny lamb hiding behind the leg of a shepherd while the wolf is snarling fierce? You must consider yourselves dead to sin doesn't mean try harder. It means the moment you've sinned, remember it's already dead it can't hurt you. It can't touch you. Jesus knew it was there before you did it, and he already died for it, and he already washed you of it. You must consider your sin dead every time it happens. It cannot harm you, and you must consider yourself every time you see your wretched state alive to God in Christ, because that's what God thinks. That's what he says. And again, that's what baptism promises. So all you out there in the the world who don't think baptism gives you something, you're missing out on the best promise God has for general daily use. Sorry, but you are. Now, there are those who will say that's too radical, that I would look at my sin after I did it and rejoice that it's dead in the very instant. Well, then I would go and sin more, wouldn't I? Then I would think it's a good thing to sin, of course, wouldn't I? No, you lying fool. The miracle just happened the moment you believed it. The moment you accepted in your mind, what your heart has known since the baptism hit you, that the sin's dead. Why would you look at your own rage fit or your own stumbling mouth or your own whatever it is that you're always trying to fix and you can never get it better? Why would you look at it happening one more time tomorrow and be like, oh, it's forgiven in Jesus. I guess I'll go do it again. The last thing you're going to do, you're going to say, thank God, it can't hurt me. Oh, look how it hurt everybody else. And you can look at it with the most objective eyes you've ever seen and maybe not do it again, at least not the same way. But to do that, I, I promise you, you must believe you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You must believe that there is nothing you can do to make yourself more righteous in this life that ultimately matters beyond your neighbor's needs you're alive already. Baptized into his name, most holy. I think that'll maybe conclude us well. 590, we sang it this morning, yeah? Thank you, Caleb, for picking that. Hmm. Yeah, verse one's marvelous. Baptized into your, that's Christ's name, most holy. O Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Like the literal name of Father, Son, and Spirit but listen to this. I claim a place. I claim a place, though weak and lowly. By my baptism, I can walk into this church and say I have every right to be here, although I should take the last seat. But I have every right to be here. I claim a place, though weak and lowly, among your saints, your chosen host, buried with Christ and dead to sin. Your spirit now shall live within. It is high time That the Christian church across this nation and the world unhook itself from the modern rationalist nonsense that spiritual things can't happen in physical things? I don't know. I mean, it's just insane. But that's why so much of Christianity does not believe in the power of baptism. I'm not saying go out and yell at your friends about it. I'm saying see what crisis of guilt and conscience they live under every day that you know is dead. Have mercy on them. Jesus has mercy on you. In the name of Jesus, amen.